This is Cory Doctorow, science fiction writer and activist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today is episode 218 for May 3rd, 2021, and oh my god, we've got so much news to cover today. I seem to say that every time, but this is a big one. I'm going to have to like make a point of like cranking through some of these stories, because there's a lot to cover, and I tried to pare this back, but I think each and every one of these stories is important. Uh, so we're going to talk about lots of things today. Uh, before I get to that real quick couple things. Uh, first of all, I just made it on to the InfoSec Conferences Podcast of the Year list. Uh, actually, they maintain a list of upcoming cybersecurity conferences. Uh, you can find them at infosec-conferences.com. And they also maintain a really cool list of cybersecurity podcasts. And I ran across this and I reached out to them. And uh, not only did they agree to put put me on their list, they made me their podcast of the year. I'm not sure what the qualifications are for that, but I'm not going to uh, not going to question it. I was very pleased to have that. So uh, they said, we've chosen Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons as our recommended podcast of the year. We love the fact that Carrie, the host, places focus on everyday non-technical people. Highly recommended. So big thanks to those guys for that. And of course, if you want to look for other InfoSec security podcasts, if, if one is not enough, or if you want something a little more technical, they've got a lot of really great ones there. So uh, anyway, that's infosec-conferences.com uh, and you'll find me listed on their cybersecurity podcast page. And next up, one more thing, the manufacturing of the secret project is complete. The first run of these, hopefully to be very popular items that will help you with your security will be uh, in my hands next week. Uh, they are actually already stateside. They're manufactured in China, and uh, like most things are. And the guy who's going to distribute them for me just got the box of items, and he has sent me my samples, and I should get mine next week. And I am putting the finishing touches on the whole launch of this thing. <laughs> Driving me nuts that I can't say more about it. Uh, but I want to make it a surprise, and I want to make it really cool. And it's going to come with lots of other great things, too. So stay tuned for... All the details on that, probably um, at, for my next news show after this one. So, but anyway, news. We've got a lot of news to cover today. A couple quick security bug fixes you're going to want to know about from macOS and Firefox. Uh, then Facebook Messenger apparently has been targeted. A lot of their users have been targeted with a scam that I want to make sure you're aware of. Uh, another supply chain attack in our software industry. This is obviously the go-to thing for the bad guys. They're all over this now, and it's something we're going to have to fix. Um, but here's yet another one, kind of like the SolarWinds hack. Uh, maybe not as big, but same kind of idea uh, with a company called CodeCov. Um, and we'll talk about what that means and who might be affected. Then some really disturbing privacy stuff out of the United States. Um, the Postal Service, uh, just saw an article about the Postal Service running a quote-unquote covert operations program. The Postal Service. And it monitors Americans' social media posts. So we're going to dig into what the, what the hell's going on there. Also related to this, you know, another article about how federal agencies are, you know, buying up consumer data, bypassing the Fourth Amendment by going to private companies who are saving off so much data about us and mining our data. It's a goldmine for the for the government, and they're they're taking full advantage of that going to talk about the Emotet malware that has supposedly been taken down. It was a major effort, but kind of the way they went about it was a little troubling, and that will lead into another story about the FBI doing something similar. 
basically this is a U.S. law enforcement agencies taking it upon themselves to kind of hack the hackers and hack the hacked to fix the hacks. <laughs> okay, that was confusing, but you'll understand more when I read about it. But it's, I understand why they're doing it, but it's kind of troubling. So, uh, and then next up, we got a story about artificial intelligence, AI. And we've talked in this show many times about how that is causing some real problems. It, while it is amazing technology that will be used for good, uh, it can also be used for, for bad. And even unintentionally, it's got problems. And especially you start applying it to per- people's lives and affecting what they can and can't do, uh, it becomes really problematic. So there's some interesting regulations that just popped up both in Europe and the U.S. that are interesting. We're going to talk about that. Next up, <laughs> you know I love Signal the app for secure messaging. These guys are doing wonderful work. And the head guy there, Moxie Marlinspike, just recently did a very clever troll and honestly, almost a takedown of Celebrite, which is the company that makes this forensic software that breaks into iPhones. And um, of course, you know, anytime there's security bugs like this, it affects all of us. If they can find these bugs, you know, someone else can too, which means we're all at risk. Uh, but that's how this company makes their money. And uh, Signal doesn't like that. In particular, Moxie doesn't like that. And he somehow managed to get a hold of one of these devices. Apparently, it fell off a truck. And uh, I'm going to read his blog article about this, which is just, just classic. Then we're going to talk about a couple Apple things. In particular, Apple just released their AirTags, their little button-sized devices that you can use to track your keys or your luggage or unfortunately, maybe people. And so we're going to talk about these devices, you know, and what Apple did to try to prevent them from being used by stalkers, and yet apparently still fell short. And finally, we're going to wrap up with iOS 14.5 and tvOS 14.5 and iPadOS 14.5. All these Apple operating system updates that bring with it app tracking transparency, something that we have needed all along uh, and Apple's finally delivered, and it's causing quite the uproar uh, with all the data miners out there, in particular Facebook and Google, uh, who really don't like giving you informed consent. So uh, we'll wrap up, and that will be our tip of the week. So, so much to get to. Let's get into it. All right, first up, just a couple of really quick notes here. Uh, I could read articles about these, but I think I'm to save time, I'm just going to Tell you to update. Uh, first of all, macOS had a really nasty security bug found. Be sure you are up to date with your Mac computers, your laptops, your desktops. It was a really nasty bug. It was uh, go- It's going to be actively exploited if it hasn't been already. And it's a serious security flaw. So make sure you are absolutely up to date on macOS. You're going to want macOS 11.3 or later. For major updates like this, you know, anything 11.x, you know, whenever that X changes... Uh, I'll usually wait a few days just to make sure there's nothing, you know, major, no major issues with it. You know, when it's 11.3.y or whatever, you know, when it's that third digit that changes, you know, that those are usually safe to take right away. But I, you know, often wait if they're a little more major, but this one, you've got to get update right away. No, don't wait on this one. Um, and by the way, if you had been following me on Facebook and or Twitter, uh, you would have seen my note about this, that it was released last Monday. Uh, you know, I was planning to talk about it this week, but that same day I was a got immediate reports uh, from all my various sources that I follow. 
saying that, you know, that update fixed a really serious security flaw. So I made sure that, you know, my followers on uh, Twitter and Facebook were aware of that. And uh, so that might be a, a good reason for you to follow me on one of those two venues. And next up, uh, Mozilla also fixed something in Firefox. It doesn't sound quite as bad. Uh, it's not quite as bad, but it, it could be serious. It, it basically allows clever hackers to show you a lock icon potentially, you know, which should mean that you're connected via HTTPS, which should mean that it's secure. And that should mean that all your data traffic is encrypted and no one between you and the website you're going to can see that data. But there was a flaw in Firefox that, that allowed bad guys to kind of trick that icon into appearing when it wasn't really there. And then of course that means that you think it's secure and it's really not. And therefore if someone was sniffing on the wire, they could actually see all the data going back and forth. So anyway, you should have Firefox auto updates set up anyway. And by the way, you should also have Mac OS updates set up to be automatic as well. Nevertheless, in both cases, sometimes you've got to kind of poke it to tell it to go ahead and make those updates. In particular with Firefox, you just need to restart it. So make sure you get both your Mac OS and your Firefox up to date. And for Firefox, that is version 88 or later. All right. Now, Facebook Messenger users have been targeted with a large scale scam. Uh, this is from HelpNet Security. Uh, and I'll just uh, dive right in here. It says a large scale scam, a large scale scam campaign targeting Facebook Messenger users all over the world has been detected by Group IB. And I'm not sure who they are, but... Um, security research group, I guess. Digital risk protection analysts have found evidence proving that users in over 80 countries in Europe, Asia, and the MEA region, North and South America, might have been affected uh, by distributing ads promoting an allegedly updated version of Facebook Messenger, cybercriminals harvested users' login credentials. Analysts have discovered nearly 1,000 Facebook profiles employed in the scheme. Upon the discovery of this type of fraud, Group IB informed the social network, which has nothing to do with the fake posts, of the ongoing campaign. It is noteworthy that this scam first came into the spotlight in the summer of 2020, with analysts based in different regions, Asia and Europe, having detected traces of the same fraudulent campaign. Since then, it has been growing progressively in scope. In April, the number of Facebook posts inviting users to, quote, install the latest messenger update, unquote, reached 5,700. To draw users' attention, fraudsters registered accounts with the names mimicking the real app. Messenger with uh, M-E-S-S-A-N-G-E-R, and then Messenger, M-E-S-E-E-N-G-E-R. Basically, these are all just misspellings. Uh, and used Facebook Messenger official logo as their profile picture. To facilitate the moderation process in Facebook and bypass its scam filters, scammers used shortened links created with the help of such services as Linktree, Bitly, Cut.us, Cutly, and Art. These are all weird shortening services, many that I have not heard of. But at the end of the day, it masks what the real web address is. After clicking on the link that is supposed to lead to the download of the app's updated version, the user finds themselves on a fake Facebook Messenger website with a login form, where they're asked to enter their credentials. Scammers used such platforms as Blogspot, Sites.Google.com, GitHub.io, and GoDaddySites.com to register fake Facebook Messenger login pages. In order to excite users and make them follow the link, scammers endowed the app with some of non-existent features like the possibility to find out who visited one's profile and see messages that were deleted or even offered to shift to Gold Messenger. I've never heard of Gold Messenger. I guess that's an upscale version of Facebook Messenger. 
Scammers even used blackmailing to force users into downloading the app and pressured the latter with threats that if they didn't sign up on the fake page, their account would be banned forever. Users who fell victim to the scheme risk leaking their personal data and have their account hijacked. Scammers, in turn, are likely to use the compromised account to either blackmail the victim, pushing them to pay a ransom to have access to their account restored, or further scale up the scheme using the Facebook profile to distribute scam ads. Users are called to stay vigilant and follow some basic cyber hygiene rules that will help avoid getting into cybercriminals' trap. One should always be cautious while following shortened links and raise a red flag if it leads to a poll or a one-page blog. That seems odd, but I guess that's popular. Okay. Never enter any personal data on websites to which you got from third-party resources, even if they have logos of well-known brands. Enter your login credentials only on social network or service official website or official app. This is not really phrased well. All right, I'll just stop here. So beware of Facebook scams whenever you're sent links, especially when they're highly pressured links. Just be really careful what you do. And if whenever you need to sign in, now this is another great reason to use a password manager because password managers are not fooled by fake sites. If you're not actually on facebook.com, no good password manager will offer to fill in your credentials for facebook.com. So, you know, when you're at some other fake site that's pretending to be that, your password manager will just not recognize it. And that should be your first clue that you're not really on the right site. All right, moving on. This is about uh, another, what we're calling a supply chain attack. And that basically means that instead of hacking the end company, what they do instead is they hack software that they know that company uses. And if you go for really popular software, like apparently the SolarWinds software was extremely popular, both in corporations and government agencies, uh, they hacked that and were managed to get their software into all these companies basically through a back door. We're going to be dealing with the output of that SolarWinds hack for, for years. And now we've come across another one. So this is from Reuters. Um, this is about a company called CodeCov, which uh, I'm guessing means it's short for code coverage, which is... In software development, you will run testing tools and you want to get an idea that you have covered most of your code with your tests. Uh, and so to figure out what percentage of code you have exercised with your automated testing, you run a code coverage tool. So hackers who tampered with a software development tool from a company called CodeCov use that program to gain restricted access to hundreds of networks belonging to the San Francisco firm's customers, investigators told Reuters. CodeCov makes software auditing tools that allow developers to see how thoroughly their own code is being tested, a process that can give the tool access to stored credentials for various internal software accounts. The attackers used automation to rapidly copy those credentials and raid additional resources, the investigator said, expanding the breach beyond the initial disclosure by CodeCov on Thursday. The hackers put extra effort into using CodeCov to get inside other makers of software development programs, as well as companies that themselves provide many customers with technology services, including IBM, one of the investors said on condition of anonymity. The person said both methods would allow the hackers to potentially gain credentials for thousands of other restricted systems. IBM and other companies said that their code had not been altered, but did not address whether access credentials to their systems had been taken. The FBI's San Francisco office is investigating the compromises, and dozens of likely victims were notified on Monday. This would have been, I think, just last Monday. Private security companies were already beginning to respond to assist multiple clients, employees said. CodeCov did not respond to Reuters' request for comment on Monday. Security experts involved in the case said the scale of the attack and the skills needed compared to last year's SolarWinds attack. The compromise of that company's widely used network management program led hackers inside nine U.S. government agencies and about 100 private companies. 
It's unclear who is behind the latest breach or if they are working for a national government, as was the case with SolarWinds. Others among CodeCov's 19,000 customers, including big tech services provider Hewlett-Packard, said they were still trying to determine if they or their customers had been hurt. And this is a quote from an HPE spokesman. He says, HPE, or Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, has a dedicated team of professionals investigating this matter, and customers should rest assured we will keep them informed of any impacts and necessary remedies as soon as we know more, unquote. Even CodeCub users who have seen no evidence of hacking were taking the breach seriously, a corporate cybersecurity official, official told Reuters. He said his company was busy resetting its credentials, and, and then his counterparts elsewhere were doing the same, as CodeCub recommended. CodeCov earlier said hackers began tampering with its software on January 31st. It was only detected earlier this month when a customer raised concerns. And that would be April, earlier in April. CodeCov's website says its customers include consumer goods conglomerate Procter & Gamble, web hosting firm GoDaddy, The Washington Post, and Australian software firm Atlassian Corporation. Atlassian said it had not seen any impact nor signs of a compromise. The Department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity arm and the FBI declined to comment. Okay, and this, like many of the other articles I'm reading today, goes on to say more things. I'm just trying to keep these short. Uh, But this is another supply chain attack, and it's just one more way in which our internet-based, software-based, computer-based world, uh, we are so dependent on these things now, and we're moving at such a breakneck pace, trying to add more features and make more money, that we need to really slow down. Security is often not thought of properly. It's not included in in the product by design. And there are holes. There are conveniences and expediencies taken that leave some of these things open for attack. So this is not the last time we're going to hear about a supply chain attack. But let's move on to uh, another form of attack that has been around for much longer, uh, but it's back in the news. And that is uh, malvertising. And this is from Hacker News. It says, an ongoing malvertising campaign tracked as Tag Barnacle, has been behind the breach of more than 120 ad servers over the past year to sneakily inject code in an attempt to serve malicious advertisements that redirects users to rogue websites, thus exposing victims to scamware or malware. Unlike other operators who set about their task by infiltrating the ad tech ecosystem using convincing personas to buy space on legitimate websites for running the malicious ads, Tag Barnacle is, quote, able to bypass this initial hurdle completely by going straight for the jugular, mass compromise of ad-serving infrastructure, unquote, said Confiant security researcher Elias Stein in a Monday write-up. The development follows a year after the Tag Barnacle actor was found to have compromised nearly 60 ad servers in April 2020, with the infections primarily targeting an open-source advertising server called Revive. The latest slew of attacks is no different, although the adversaries appear to have upgraded their tools to target mobile devices as well. Another quote from Stein says, quote, Tag Barnacle is now pushing mobile-targeted campaigns, whereas last year they were happy to take on desktop traffic, unquote. Specifically, the websites that receive an ad through a hacked server carries out client-side fingerprinting to deliver a second-stage JavaScript payload, click tracker ads, when certain checks are satisfied, that then redirect users to malicious websites, aiming to lure the visitors to an app store listing for fake security, safety, or VPN apps, which come with hidden subscription costs or hijack the traffic for other nefarious purposes. Given that Revive is used by a good number of ad platforms and media companies, Confiant pegs the reach of Tag Barnacle in the range of, quote, tens if not hundreds of millions of devices, unquote. And one last quote from Stein, she says, 
Quote, this is a conservative estimate that takes into consideration the fact that they cookie their victims in order to reveal the payload with low frequency, likely to slow down detection of their presence, unquote. I'm not sure I follow what they mean by that last one. I'm not going to think about it too heavily. But this is, frankly, another reason that I just block all ads whenever possible. Um, again, when I'm on the web, certainly on my desktop, I'm using U uBlock Origin and Privacy Badger to block as many ads as possible. Not only are they extremely annoying, but they can be avenues for receiving malware or scams. So just another reason to use ad blockers. On your mobile phone, unfortunately, it's a lot harder to do, at least on iPhone anyway. Uh, there are some plugins that they allow. I think one blocker is one of them um, on iPhone, but it's a lot harder to block ads. Now, if you're at home uh, and you're using home Wi-Fi, you can block a lot of ads by using a Pi Hole, uh, which is a Raspberry Pi based computer that uh, acts as a DNS sinkhole. So I know lots of weird terms there, lots of jargon. I apologize. We talked about this on the show before, but basically it's a little computer that, like about the size of two decks of cards stacked on top of each other. You can hook up to your home network, hook it up to your router, basically tell the router that this is your DNS server, and then it will block access to known advertising sites, as well as some uh, sites that are known to serve up malware. And it's wonderful. It protects everything in your home. I'm always shocked when I leave the house on my iPhone and I go out and start using cellular data and all of a sudden I'm seeing a lot more ads than I was seeing when I was at home. And that's because it, on my home Wi-Fi, my pie hole cuts all that stuff out. All right, next up. Again, these are US-focused stories and I know we have a, a, a global audience, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, what should our governments be allowed to do on our behalf, supposedly for our benefit, uh, you know, without trampling our rights. Um, and this one is really weird. From Yahoo News, it says, The law enforcement arm of the U.S. Postal Service, which who knew they had one, has been quietly running a program that tracks and collects Americans' social media posts, including those about planned protests, according to a document obtained by Yahoo News. The details of the surveillance effort, known as ICOP, or Internet Covert Operations Program, have not previously been made public. The work involves having analysts to look through social media sites to look for what the document describes as, quote-unquote, inflammatory postings, and then share that information across government agencies. Quote, analysts of the United States Postal Inspection Service Internet Covert Operations Program monitored significant activity regarding planned protests occurring internationally and domestically on March 20th, 2021, unquote, says the March 16th government bulletin marked as law enforcement sensitive and distributed through the Department of Homeland Security's fusion centers. Returning to the bulletin, it says, quote, Locations and times have been identified for these protests, which are being distributed online across multiple so social media platforms to include right-wing-leaning parlor and telegram accounts, unquote. The bulletin includes screenshots of posts about the protests from Facebook, Parler, Telegram, and other social media sites. Individuals mentioned by name, including one alleged Proud Boy and several others whose identifying details were included, but whose posts did not appear to contain anything threatening. The government's monitoring of so American social media is the subject of an ongoing debate inside and outside government, particularly in recent months following a rise in domestic unrest. While the posts on platforms such as Facebook and Parler have allowed law enforcement to track down and arrest rioters who assaulted the Capitol on June January 6th, such data collection has also sparked concerns about the government surveilling peaceful protesters or those engaged in protected First Amendment activities. When contacted by Yahoo News, civil liberties experts expressed alarm at the post office surveillance program. Uh, this is a quote from University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone. 
uh, who uh, President Obama appointed to review the NSA's bulk data collection after Edward Snowden leaked it. And he says, quote, it's a mystery. I don't understand why the government would go to the Postal Service for examining the Internet for security issues. And then another quote here from Rachel Levison Waldman, who's deputy director of the Brennan Center for Justice, says, quote, this seems a little bizarre. Based on the very minimal information that's available online, it appears that ICOP is meant to root out misuse of the postal system by online actors, which doesn't seem to encompass what's going on here. It's not at all clear why their mandate would include monitoring of social media that's unrelated to the use of the postal system, unquote. Levinson Waldman also questioned the legal authority of the Postal Service to monitor social media activity. In a final quote from her, she says, If the individuals they're monitoring are carrying out or planning criminal activity, that should be the purview of the FBI. If they're simply engaging in lawfully protected speech, even if it's odious or objectionable, then monitoring them on that basis raises serious constitutional concerns, unquote. And yeah, that's, that's my kind of point of this whole thing is, you know, when you say that you're going after terrorists or you're going after, you know, groups that, you know, maybe a majority of people would agree are groups doing bad things, it could be easy to get behind. But then when they start monitoring you or people you know or some groups that you actually do agree with, then you start to wonder, you know, if it's really a good idea. Um, I don't know what the heck the post office is doing involved in this stuff, but it, I... <laughs> I would think that they should not be doing this and leave this, as the article says, to the FBI and others whose job it is to do this sort of thing. And then, of course, the bigger issue of whether or not they should be monitoring social media and how they're doing it. I guess if at least if it's a human maybe doing it as opposed to algorithms, you know, maybe it could be sort of a, sort of good about picking out what's true threats and what aren't. But, you know, we've got to be really careful about thought police and stifling regular free speech, even if we don't agree with what that speech is. All right. Speaking of other constitutional issues, uh, I've talked about this before, but here's yet another article. And it's from the Brennan Center, which I just quoted, by the way, uh, for that other article. Um, and this is a direct uh, post from the Brennan Center about some disturbing activity that they've discovered. The Treasury Department's Inspector General recently issued a report warning that the IRS's purchase of GPS location data may be unconstitutional in light of a landmark 2018 Supreme Court decision requiring a warrant for historical cell phone location data. The IRS is not alone in circumventing the warrant requirement by simply buying location data. The FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense have all been caught secretly purchasing cell phone location information as well as other sensitive consumer data. It's time to put a stop to this practice which violates the Fourth Amendment. In United States v. Carpenter, the Supreme Court recognized that a central aim of the Fourth Amendment is to, quote, place obstacles in the way of too permeating police surveillance, unquote. The court held that police need a warrant to obtain historical cell site location information, a type of data generated as a cell phone automatically connects to nearby cell towers. Federal agencies have argued the decision applies only to this specific type of location data, and they have taken to purchasing access to commercial databases containing location information that can be used to track specific individuals. However, as the Treasury Department Inspector General recognized, the ruling has broader implication when it comes to recalibrating Fourth Amendment protections for the digital age. This is because the court's holding was premised on the understanding that technologies like cell phones are indispensable for participation in modern society. When these technologies automatically convey sensitive and revealing data without any affirmative action on the part of the user, it does not square with the Fourth Amendment to require Americans to make an impossible choice. Safeguard their privacy by giving up the use of an essential tool 
or accept that the government will have effortless access to detailed data about their every move. Thus, to preserve the guarantees of privacy that the founders intended, the Fourth Amendment protects the data produced by such technologies, and the government must use a warrant to get it. For example, although Carpenter did not specifically address GPS data, the Inspector General noted that in future cases, courts may apply its logic to limit the use of GPS data without a warrant. By buying data rather than obtaining it pursuant to a subpoena, warrant, or court order, federal agencies are circumventing the basic safeguard against abusive policing enshrined in the Fourth Amendment, the requirement that police obtain a warrant from a judge before conducting a search or seizure. The government's ability to buy sensitive location information without judicial or legislative oversight upends the time-honored balance of power between the people and the government established in the Fourth Amendment. It creates opportunities for law enforcement monitoring that would otherwise be infeasible due to resource and technical constraints, facilitating unimpeded government surveillance on a massive scale that would have been unimaginable a few decades ago. And I'm just going to stop right there. This is a point I've made often when this comes up, and that is... Back in the day, if the police wanted to tail someone or monitor someone, they had to assign people to it. They had to park a surveillance car, do a stakeout. They they had to, you know, send someone to tail somebody. And that naturally limited their ability to do such things. But we all now carry a tracking device in our pocket. And if they could just simply go out and get everybody's data anytime they want, that's a horse of a different color. All right, back to the article. In the absence of such oversight, federal agencies are using purchased data to target already vulnerable communities. For example, leaked documents revealed that at least two branches of the DHS, Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, bought cell phone location data. In addition, ICE has reportedly purchased utility data, as well as information from private license plate reader databases. The agencies tracked migrant groups and targeted individuals for immigration enforcement using this information. News reports also indicate that the FBI, Secret Service, and the Department of Defense have acquired smartphone location data without a warrant. Defense contractors purchased location data from popular Muslim prayer and Quran apps and dating apps. Several members of Congress have made an official inquiry into how this data has been utilized. And cell phone data was allegedly used to track Black Lives Matter protesters over the summer. Though it is uncertain exactly how cell phone data informed the FBI's response to the protests, it is notable that the agency renegotiated its purchase contract with a data broker around the time of the demonstrations. The use of purchase data to target religious groups and protesters emphasizes the critical importance of the Fourth Amendment in protecting against discriminatory policing practices. It also underscores the chilling effect unrestricted surveillance has on other civil liberties, including religious freedom and the right to dissent. For example, some community leaders urged Muslims to delete their prayer apps after reports about the data sales. And concerns about cell phone monitoring at protests prompted several civil liberties groups to publish surveillance self-defense toolkits for protesters, urging them to leave their phones at home and providing tips on shielding themselves from police monitoring. Secrecy magnifies the problem. For example, a public records request recently revealed that although court documents suggested an arrest by federal authorities was related to a routine traffic stop, a subject was actually apprehended using cell phone location data purchased by ICE. This lack of transparency makes it even easier for federal agencies to evade typical checks on abuses of police power because the public is unaware of the full extent of what data is being purchased and what it is being used for. It's up to lawmakers and the public to push for legislation ending law enforcement's practice of purchasing consumer data. Proposals are being introduced at the federal and local level that would either ban government agencies from buying personal information from data brokers or limit the sale of cell phone location data. These are promising and necessary starts to close the loopholes in the privacy laws. Okay, so I don't think I could have said much more or much better myself. Uh, So it's an important issue. It's, again, it's this whole data-driven economy. 
And this is part of what the book Privacy is Power is talking about. This is a problem. And because there's all this data floating around and way more than there needs to be, the government has figured out, as have the bad guys like hackers and other foreign states and espionage groups, uh, that this data is ripe for hacking or <laughs> in some cases just buying it. Okay, let's let's move on. So much yet to cover. Emotet, that's E-M-O-T-E-T, is a malware campaign that has been very successful for the bad guys, but apparently has just been taken down by a global law enforcement effort. Uh, And this is an article from CPO Magazine. The Emotet botnet, widely considered to be the most dangerous of its type in the world, has been dissolved as of April 25th. An international law enforcement campaign that began in 2020 culminated in the infiltration and control of the botnet's infrastructure, with a beneficial payload delivered to infected devices that scrubs the Emotet malware from their systems. Emotet is thought to have infected about 1.6 million devices worldwide, with a global command and control system that spanned hundreds of servers. The criminals that previously controlled the botnet rented out access to compromised networks to other threat actors primarily for ransomware campaigns and exfiltration of sensitive data. Called Operation Ladybird, the effort included law enforcement agencies from at least nine countries including Europol, the United States FBI, the United Kingdom's National Crime Agency, and the Dutch National Police. It appears to have stemmed from a raid by police in the Ukraine in which physical assets belonging to suspects associated with running the botnet were seized. The Emotet malware has been running wild since 2014, first seen as a Trojan targeting banking systems. Over the years, the hackers controlling it pivoted to using it as a crime-for-rent system as it racked up a large collection of compromised devices and illicit access to networks. Most of the criminals that made use of it engaged in broad phishing campaigns that leveraged the botnet to send out massive amounts of emails. These emails generally came with a malicious Word document that would compromise the target system when macros were enabled. The law enforcement agencies were able to gain access to Emotet malware servers sometime after April 1st, 2020, and work to destroy the botnet from the inside through January 2021. The solution they ultimately came up with was to use the command and control system to push an update to the infected devices that cleans Emotet from the system. While this breaks the connection with the Emotet botnet, it does not remove any additional malware that Emotet clients might have left on systems after purchasing access to them. Officials are anticipating that criminals will attempt to rebuild the Emotet malware network, but there will likely be an extended reprieve at the very least. Pushing a background payload in order to disable the Emotet malware is a potentially problematic solution from a legal standpoint. But some law enforcement agencies, such as the U.S. Department of Justice, are pointing out that their own government is not involved. The malware servers are now under the control of the German Federal Police Agency. Ilya Kolachenko, founder and chief architect of ImmunaWeb, points out that this sets a precedent that could potentially move in dangerous directions. And she says, quote, If viewed as an isolated incident, this is a laudable and highly successful operation of law enforcement. However, privacy advocates may sooner or later start questioning such anti-malware operations in cyberspace as potentially intrusive and unwarranted. There are also some chances that removal may damage the infected system due to some unforeseeable circumstances, such as unique or unusual configuration of the, co- of the compromised machine. Where I see the risk is that hostile nation-states may follow the U.S. and E.U. example and deploy massive cleaning operations in the Internet that would be difficult to monitor and control. Attribution of hacking attacks, disguised as cleaning campaigns, will become almost impossible from technical and legal viewpoints, unquote. So yeah, it always comes back to this. Any tool that can be used for good can be used for evil. And, you know, in this one case, 
it seems like it was an interesting solution to the problem. Basically, this Emotet botnet, and a botnet is nothing more than a, a whole bunch, in this case probably, well, it's at 1.6 billion devices, that have been hacked. And once hacked, instead of you know attacking the owners of those devices, they conscript these devices into their army of zombie computers. And while these computers continue to function and do all the things that they would normally do, in the background, there's malware running that is doing other bad things, like sending out millions of emails to try to hack other computers or fish information or, or whatever. And so basically, law enforcement figured out where this operation was located, apparently in the Ukraine. They raided the, the office of these places and took over these command and control servers. And I guess that should explain that. So when I have infected these 1.6 million devices and I've got this army of, and some of these devices, by the way, are IOT devices. Like there could be webcams and DVRs and smart televisions and smart toasters. And all it has to be is a computer running software that's connected to the internet. And so when I have this 1.6 million devices at my disposal, what can I do with these things? Well, in order to direct them to do anything, uh, once I've established a beachhead, I've got a foot in the door uh, in all these devices, I can now tell them to do whatever I want, including download more software to do different new things. And so that's where these command and control servers come in. These compromised devices phone home. Uh, they call these command and control servers every so often to say, hey, you got anything new for me? And when they do, they say, yeah, here's, here's the latest thing I want you to do. Go send these emails to all these people in a phishing scam or do a denial of service attack against this other server or whatever. That's the whole point of these command and control servers is they can, you know, now tell these conscripted devices to do their bidding. So law enforcement found and took over all these command and control servers, uh, you know, effectively putting this out of business, but they went one step further and basically as the final command from these command and control servers, they said, fix yourself. <laughs> they basically removed the bit of software, the bit of malware running on all those devices that allowed the command and control servers to tell them what to do. Now, again, as the article points out, any other malware that was delivered to these devices in addition to these Emotet client software uh, was left. I mean, they would have no real way of knowing what those things were and how to delete that. But it's clever. It's interesting. It's obviously efficient. However, like the article says, if I was Russia or China or North Korea, you know, and I wanted to get away with a malware campaign, I might try to disguise it as one of these cleanup operations. It's, it's a definite gray area. And to that point, let's get to our next article, which is about something the FBI recently did to try to clean up some of the solar winds fallout, uh, another supply chain attack. So let me read this article from the next web. Uh, and this is written by a guy named Scott Shackelford. He refers to himself in here uh, in the first person. He's an associate professor of business and law ethics and the cybersecurity program chair at Indiana University of Bloomington. And this is uh, an article he wrote, and it says, The FBI has the authority right now to access privately owned computers without their owner's knowledge or consent and to delete software. It's part of a government effort to contain the continuing attacks on corporate networks running Microsoft Exchange software. And it's an unprecedented intrusion that's raising legal questions about just how far the government can go. On April 9th, the United States District Court for the Southern District of Texas approved a search warrant allowing the U.S. Department of Justice to carry out the operation. 
The software the FBI is deleting is malicious code installed by hackers to take control of a victim's computer. Hackers have used the code to access vast amounts of private email messages and to launch ransomware attacks. The authority the Justice Department relied on and the way the FBI carried out the operation set important precedents. They also raised questions about the power of courts to regulate cybersecurity without the consent of the owners of the targeted computers. As a cybersecurity scholar, I have studied, and of course that's the guy, this is Scott Shackelford that I mentioned earlier. I have studied this type of cybersecurity dubbed active defense and how the public and private sectors have relied on each other for cybersecurity for years. Public-private cooperation is critical for managing the wide range of cyber threats facing the U.S., but it poses challenges, including determining how far the government can go in the name of national security. It's also important for Congress and the courts to oversee this balancing act. Since at least January 2021, hacking groups have been using zero-day exploits, meaning previously unknown vulnerabilities, in Microsoft Exchange to access email accounts. The hackers used this access to insert web shells, software that allows them to remotely control the compromised systems and networks. Tens of thousands of email users and organizations have been affected. One result has been a series of ransomware attacks, which encrypts victims' files and holds the keys to decrypt them for ransom. On March 2, 2021, Microsoft announced that a hacking group codenamed Hafnium had been using multiple zero-day exploits to install web shells with unique file names and paths. This makes it challenging for administrators to remove the malicious code, even with the tools and patches Microsoft and cybersecurity firms have released to assist the victims. The FBI is accessing hundreds of these mail servers in corporate networks. The search warrant allows the FBI to access the web shells, enter the previously discovered password for a web shell, make a copy for evidence, and then delete the web shell. The FBI, though, was not authorized to remove any other malware that hackers might have installed during the breach or otherwise access the contents of the servers. What makes this case unique is both the scope of the FBI's actions to remove the web shells and the unprecedented intrusion into privately owned computers without the owner's consent. The FBI undertook the operation without consent because of the large number of unprotected systems throughout the U.S. networks and the urgency of the threat. The action demonstrates the Justice Department's commitment to using, quote, all of our legal tools, unquote, Assistant Attorney General John Demers said in a statement. The total number of compromised firms remains murky given that the figure is redacted in the court documents, but it could be as many as 68,000 exchange servers, which would potentially affect millions of email users. New malware attacks on Microsoft Exchange servers continue to surface, and the FBI is continuing to to undertake court-authorized action to remove the malicious code. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act generally makes it illegal to access a computer without authorization. This law, though, does not apply to the government. The FBI has the power to remove malicious code from private computers without permission thanks to a change in 2016 to Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. This revision was designed in part to enable the U.S. government to more easily battle botnets and aid other cybercrime investigations in situations where the perpetrators' locations remained unknown. It permits the FBI to access computers outside the jurisdiction of a search warrant. This action highlights the precedent and power of courts becoming de facto cybersecurity regulators that can empower the Department of Justice to clean up large-scale deployments of malicious code of the kind seen in the exchange hack. In 2017, for example, the FBI made use of the expanded Rule 41 to take down a global botnet that harvested victims' information and used their computers to send spam emails. Important legal issues remain unresolved with the FBI's current operation. One is the question of liability. What if, for example, the privately owned computers were damaged in the FBI's process of removing the malicious code? 
Another issue is how to balance private property rights against national security needs in cases like this. What is clear, though, is that under this authority, the FBI could hack into computers at will and without the need for a specific search warrant. Rob Joyce, NSA's cybersecurity director, said that cybersecurity is national security. This statement may seem uncontroversial, but it does portend a sea change in the government's responsibility for cybersecurity, which has largely been left up to the private sector. Most of the U.S. critical infrastructure, which includes computer networks, is in private hands. Yet companies have not always made the necessary investments to protect their customers. This raises the question of whether there has been a market failure in cybersecurity where economic incentives haven't been sufficient to result in adequate cyber defenses. With the FBI's actions, the Biden administration may be acknowledging such a market failure. So yeah, that is that is true. Um, this is not a, a solution that the market can fix. Those who are in favor of free market economics, you know, would like to somehow make it financially incentivized for companies to provide security. Uh, and the idea being that, you know, product A is more secure than product B, and the company can prove that or at least convince a customer of that, and that customer may be a large corporation, that product A will win out and product B will lose, and things just work. Things get more secure because companies that want to get your business will try to create more secure products. But that has definitely not happened. Security is almost always an afterthought. A lot of these companies will throw up all these slogans about, you know, military-grade encryption and all sorts of security claims, but they're very rarely independently verified. It, and it's, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. So what happens in most cases of safety in the United States and probably around the world is when you want to guarantee safety, you've got to have regulations, and then you've got to have regulators that enforce those regulations. A lot of people don't like the word regulation, but <laughs> regulations and regulators are what allow us to eat food and take medicine and drive cars and fly in airplanes without having to worry about them. That's why so many safety features come from regulations and not from free market economics, because free market economics very rarely solve these kind of problems. All right, next article. This is about artificial intelligence. Um, And this is an interesting story from fortune.com. It says, the sun is starting to set on the wild west days of artificial intelligence. The sheriff and his posse have just ridden into town. In this case, it's laws, not lawmen, that are coming for AI, heralding the end of the era of self-regulation. First, the European Union last week unveiled its proposed Artificial Intelligence Act. It's a sweeping 108-page piece of legislation that would ban the use of AI for what it terms, quote, manipulative, addictive, social control, and indiscriminate surveillance practices, unquote. It would also impose strict requirements on what it calls high-risk uses of AI. These include critical infrastructure where people's lives and health are at risk, education and vocational settings where AI is used to determine access to teaching or training, employment and worker management, essential private and public services, including financial services such as loans, law enforcement, migration, asylum and border control, and the administration of justice. And by the way, that's that little reference is key. There, there are algorithms in the United States that are used to come up with sentencing guidelines for criminals. Now, judges still have to approve them, but basically, you know, how many years should this guy get is fed into an algorithm, and out pops a number, and that is the starting point. So, it, that little last bit there is important as well. Okay, back to the article. In these high-risk areas, companies need to ensure that they've assessed the risks and are taking steps to mitigate any dangers. They also have to maintain audit trails, guarantee the data that they've used to train the system is of high quality, and ensure that meaningful human oversight of AI systems is maintained. 
Yes, many of these terms, as critics of the proposed law have pointed out, remain ambiguous and are frustratingly ill-defined, opening up a potential legal morass if they aren't clarified later in the rulemaking process. And yes, it would likely, likely take two years for the law to wend its way through the EU's legal sausage-making. But there's no mistaking the landmark nature of the legislation, which is the first effort by a government anywhere in the world to wrap its arms around AI and all its potential uses for good and ill. Meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, last week took a small but historic step in the direction of regulating AI, issuing updated guidance that made it clear that using an algorithm that resulted in discrimination would constitute, quote, unfair or deceptive practices, unquote, prohibited by the FTC Act. It also warned companies that they could fall afoul of the law by gathering training data for their AI systems in a misleading way, or if by overhyping what their AI system can actually do. And this is a quote from them. It says, quote, keep in mind that if you don't hold yourself accountable, the FTC may do it for you, unquote. And in the article, it actually says, with that quote, it said, the agency warned in unusually stark language. The winds from both Europe and the U.S. are both blowing in the same direction. Significant regulation of AI is coming. Get ready. Okay. Yeah. So this is a good thing. You know, AI is getting out of hand. Uh, it can do some really great things. Um, you know, if you want to start using it to diagnose cancer or get a better read on CAT scans and x-rays, you know, look for drug interactions. There are amazing, powerful, wonderful things that we can do by crunching lots of data and giving it to artificial intelligence systems and machine learning systems. But when personal data becomes involved and when outcomes to people's lives are affected by these things, We've got to be extremely careful, and transparency is key. So, these are welcome steps. Okay, two more articles, and then it's time for the tip of the week. I told you there's a lot of stuff to cover today. <laughs> but this next one is just, just classic. And uh, let me preface this a little bit um, by talking about Celebrite. So, Celebrite is a company, I forget where they're located. I want to say Israel, but I could be wrong. I guess it doesn't matter. Um, but their claim to fame is they make iPhone hacking devices, basically. Um, they would call it, you know, smart device forensic data collectors or something. I don't know, I'm sure something much more euphemistic. But at the end of the day, what they are doing is they their job is to break the security of these devices so that law enforcement agencies or, I guess, intelligence agencies can break into locked smart devices. Our smart devices today contain tons of highly personal information. And unlike when you get a search warrant for a house and you can, you know, can tell the judge, look, I believe that the murder weapon is going to be, you know, in this person's apartment and I want the ability to check for this weapon in this location and nothing else. And they're highly targeted, highly specified in terms of time and location and what it is you're searching for. If you crack open someone's cell phone, there's currently, at least there's no protections against what you can and can't look at. And think of, all the amazing amounts of information that is either contained on your phone or is accessible through your phone. Emails, calendar events, location history, web history, what apps you have installed, what all your contact list, who you've talked to, how you've talked to them, when you've talked to them, how long you've talked to them. Photos, movies, recordings, it, the list goes on and on. So, you know, we really don't have a good way to have a focused... Uh, search warrant further the contents of a cell phone. Anyway, this company Celebrite, their whole thing is cracking 
the encryption on these devices so that they can get to all the information stored on a device without the user unlocking their phone. And so they claim that they can break into iPhones and Android phones and whatever else, and they sell software and equipment to do this. And Signal, who is the maker of what I believe is the best in, uh, in terms of security and privacy messaging app on the planet, is run by some guys who are really, really uptight about security and privacy. Uh, and Moxie Marlinspike is a hacker, let's, uh, in the best sense of the term. And this takedown of Celebrite that I'm about to read you is just, <laughs> I'm doing my chef's kiss. It's just beautifully done and well executed. And, and uh, let me, let me just read it and I'll talk to you about it. But basically what he did was, is he wrote this blog article and it's much, much longer than this. And I encourage you, if you have any technical interest in this at all, that you read the full article. Uh, but I'm just going to read kind of the important parts. And I, <laughs> I will try to embed this with the snark that I'm sure that it contains. All right. Here's what Moxie said. He said, Celebrite makes software to automate physically extracting and indexing data from mobile devices. They exist within the gray where enterprise branding joins together with the larcenist to be called digital intelligence. Their customer list has included authoritarian regimes in Belarus, Russia, Venezuela, and China, death squads in Bangladesh, military juntas in Myanmar, and those seeking to abuse and oppress in Turkey, UAE, and elsewhere. A few months ago, they announced that they added signal support to their software. Their products often have been linked to the persecution of imprisoned journalists and activists around the world, but less has been written about what their software actually does or how it works. Let's take a closer look. In particular, their software is often associated with bypassing security, so let's take some time to examine the security of their own software. First of all, anything involving Celebrite starts with someone else physically holding your device in their hands. Celebrite does not do any kind of data interception or remote surveillance. They produce two primary pieces of software, both for Microsoft Windows, UFED and Physical Analyzer. UFED creates a backup of your device onto the Windows machine running the software. Once a backup has been created, Physical Analyzer then parses the files from the backup in order to display the data in browsable form. One way to think about Celebrite's products is that if someone is physically holding your unlocked device in their hands, they could open whatever apps they would like and take screenshots of everything in them to save and go over later. Celebrite essentially automates that process for someone holding your device in their hands. And this is where the snark comes in. I love this. He says, by a truly unbelievable coincidence, I was recently out for a walk when I saw a small package fall off a truck ahead of me. As I got closer, the dull enterprise typeface slowly came into focus. Celebrite. Inside, we found the latest versions of the Celebrite software, a hardware dongle designed to prevent piracy, which tells you something about their customers, I guess, and a bizarrely large number of cable adapters. Anyone familiar with software security will immediately recognize that the primary task of Celebrite software is to parse untrusted data from a wide variety of formats as used by many different apps. That is to say, the data Celebrite software needs to extract and display is ultimately generated and controlled by the apps on the device, not a trusted source, so Celebrite can't make any assumptions about the correctness of the formatted data it is receiving. This is the space in which virtually all security vulnerabilities originate. Since almost all of Celebrite's code exists to parse untrusted input that could be formatted in an unexpected way to exploit memory corruption or other vulnerabilities in the parsing software, one might expect Celebrite to have been extremely cautious. 
Looking at both UFED and Physical Analyzer, though, we were surprised to find that very little care seems to have been given to Celebrite's own software security. Industry standard exploit mitigation defenses are missing, and many opportunities for exploitation are present. As just one example, unrelated to what follows, their software bundles FFmpeg DLLs that were built in 2012 and have not been updated since then. There have been over a hundred security updates in that time, none of which have been applied. And just I'll stop real quick. FFmpeg is an open source software library that is used to parse things like MP3 files. And a DLL is just a library. So basically, this device is using open source software to play video files or play audio files, for example. But they're using a really, really old version of it that is missing a lot of security updates. All right, back to Moxie's blog. He says, Given the number of opportunities present, we found that it's possible to execute arbitrary code on a Celebrite machine simply by including a specially formatted but otherwise innocuous file in any app on a device that is subsequently plugged into Celebrite and scanned. There are virtually no limits on the code that can be executed. For example, by including a specially formatted but otherwise innocuous file in an app on a device that is then scanned by Celebrite, it's possible to execute code that modifies not just the Celebrite report being created in that scan, but also all previous and future generated Celebrite reports from all previously scanned devices and all future devices in any arbitrary way, inserting or removing text, email, photos, contacts, files, and any other data with no detectable timestamp changes or checksum failures. This could be done at random and would seriously call the data integrity of Celebrite's reports into question. Now, let me just stop right there. Think about what think about what he is saying here. What he is basically saying is that this Celebrite code that snarfs data off of your device and then reads through that data and generates reports based on what it finds is horribly, horribly insecure. Such that if one of those apps were to contain some data, a file, that was specially crafted by, ooh, I don't know, a really smart hacker, like, mm, I don't know, Moxie, the Celebrite software itself would be compromised, and the device running the Celebrite software would be compromised in such a way that it's possible that the software could alter the output of this report, and in fact could alter the output of any previously generated reports, and could be set to alter all future reports generated by this thing. Now, if you are a prosecutor trying to use data output from Celebrite for your case, to make your case, to, to show evidence, this would present a real problem. Not just for the current case you're on, but for any other case that ever involved a Celebrite report. All right, let me get back to the article. Moxie goes on to say, any app could contain such a file. And until Celebrite is able to accurately repair all vulnerabilities in its software with extremely high confidence, the only remedy a Celebrite user has is to not scan devices. Celebrite could reduce the risk to their users by updating their software to stop scanning apps it considers high risk for these types of data integrity problems, but even that has no guarantee. So again, let me stop. It's what he's not saying here that's important, and it's just why it's so clever. So the first part of this paragraph is instilling doubt, right? It's, it's saying, can you trust Celebrite anymore from this point on? Well, the only way you could really trust it now, knowing what you know, until they can at least fix these bugs, is to not use it at all. 
And even then, are you really sure that you fixed all the bugs? Maybe you missed one. And the real kicker here is, how would you ever know if it's really secure? You can't. So can you ever trust it again? (laughs) All right, let me finish. I'm almost done here. We are, of course, willing to responsibly disclose the specific vulnerabilities we know about to Celebrite if they do the same for all the vulnerabilities they use in their physical extraction and other services to their respective vendors now and in the future. So again, very clever. Basically what he's saying is, look, you know, we're security researchers. We know what we know. We want to fix security vulnerabilities. We will help you fix your security vulnerabilities. We will release that information to you if you in turn release all the security vulnerabilities that you are currently exploiting to hack the devices. In other words, companies like Celebrite hoard zero-day vulnerabilities in devices so that they can hack them so that they have a business. They cannot further (laughs) give up their own secrets or they will be out of business. And it's because they rely on security vulnerabilities and they keep them to themselves instead of being responsible and disclosing them to Apple or Google or any of these other device makers that they're hacking, instead of, you know, going to these places that, hey, you've got security vulnerabilities here you need to fix, because if if you don't, you know, bad guys can can exploit them. They keep them to themselves, and they base their entire business on the fact that they can use these exploits to crack open these encrypted devices. All right, last paragraph from Moxie. In completely unrelated news... Upcoming versions of Signal will be periodically fetching files to place in app storage. These files are never used for anything inside Signal and never interact with Signal software or data, but they look nice, and aesthetics are important in software. Files will only be returned for accounts that have been active installs for some time already, and only probabilistically in low percentages based on phone number sharding. We have a few different versions of files that we think are aesthetically pleasing and will iterate through these slowly over time. There is no other significance to these files. <laughs> so that was that was just so masterfully done. And I, I had to read it. There's actually, there's a lot more technical details if you want to get into it. It actually talks about other things. In fact, some of the other things these Celebrite tools are doing are using some Apple libraries that they have not explicitly licensed from Apple. So, you know, uh, Moxie made a point of calling that out and maybe, you know, getting Apple's lawyers involved because Moxie obviously does not like Celebrite. I don't like Celebrite. I, I, while I understand what they're doing and I understand the need for law enforcement to do forensic work, you know, we're all made safer with better defenses. And when companies like this hoard zero day vulnerabilities for their own profit, we all lose. So anyway, hats off uh, and slow clap for uh, Moxie for that wonderfully done bit of uh, bit of blogging and uh, research work. I'll be very, very interested to see what happens. In fact, there's already been some lawyers who are contesting uh, results of cases where the Celebrite software was the basis for uh, the conviction. So again, I, I I realize that there are probably cases where you would think this is a good thing. Terrorist cases, in fact, it was uh, it was thought that Celebrite was the one who finally cracked open the iPhone in the San Bernardino case uh, shooting back in the day. It, it turns out it wasn't, uh, but it's another company that does the same kind of stuff. And I just 
I know it's probably controversial, at least to some people, but I come down on the fence of, of saying that encryption is good, security is good. All of us, including our law enforcement agencies, should be trying to make everything as secure as possible. And if they know that something is broken, they need to go to the owner of that software or hardware device and get it fixed. Because at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a backdoor that only good guys can go through. Okay, now, um, I've got two stories about Apple to finish up with. First of all, uh, I want to talk about something that they just released, a little device that has been rumored for years called AirTags. And it's actually really cool. And I actually have ordered some for myself and my family. I plan to use them. But what I want to highlight is that even really cool technological products, and even with companies like Apple that are super focused on privacy and went to great lengths to try to make these little tracking devices private, as hard as that might seem to do, uh, they did a very good job. But it's not quite good enough, and I think they're still going to need to make some changes. And so it just highlights that you know even companies I like making products I think are really cool can make mistakes, and uh, they need to be held accountable. So uh, this is there's actually a much longer article that I would recommend you read if you're at all interested in this in mashable.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it takes a little more uh, snarky view of this, but it also goes into more details of specifically how this was used. This, uh, The author of that article actually went through the process of tracking some of her friends with their knowledge uh, using these AirTags um, and exposing some of the limitations of the anti-stalking features that Apple has tried very hard to include with these tags. And what these things are, if you haven't seen them, uh, they're little buttons. They're little round things that are about the size of a quarter, I'm guessing, or maybe a half dollar in the United States with a little battery inside, a little common CR2032 battery that uses Bluetooth and Apple's proprietary ultra-wideband technology to emit little beacon signals. And it's done in a very clever way, and I, I'm not going to get into the technology now, but uh, these IDs are rotating IDs. And that it makes it hard to track an individual device. But when you pair one with your phone, you can figure out where that little bug, it's kind of like a bug, but it's not a listening device. It's a tracking device. Where this little tracking device is anywhere on the planet, pretty much. Because unlike Bluetooth devices that just kind of look for something, you know, within, I think Bluetooth can now go up to 400 feet in certain situations, like uh, some of these other products like Tile. Um, if it's that close with you, then you can bring it up on your phone and you can help figure out where it is. But once it's outside your, outside your phone's Bluetooth range, most all these Bluetooth devices can no longer, no longer be found. But Apple has come up with a really interesting technology that leverages all of Apple's devices. That's billions of phones and computers and other things all around the planet to help track these devices. So when it goes out of your phone's Bluetooth range, as long as it's within some other Apple device's range, either for Bluetooth or this ultra wideband uh, proprietary technology they use, that phone will note down the location of that device and send it up to the cloud such that you can figure out where that device is, even if it's not near you. It's really cool. And the ultra wideband thing helps you like when it's in your house, like let's say you put it on your keys it actually, if you bring up your phone, it has this nifty little tracking app that will tell you like warmer, colder, as you get closer to it, it'll point in what direction it is. Uh, you can make it, you can have the little device play a chirp, have it play a beeping sound if you've lost it. So you can help find it by sound. It's really cool. But obviously one real problem with that is, well, what if I slipped one, one of these little tracking devices up to somebody who didn't know I did it? 
Then what? Apple thought of that. They thought long and hard about that. And they came up with what they believed was a compromised solution to prevent that. And this article is going to talk about what they did, but we'll also find out where it falls short. So this is an article from 9to5Mac. And again, there's a much longer, more technical, well, not about more technical, but a longer, more detailed article in Mashable.com that you might want to read if you're interested in this. Uh, particularly if you might be subject to domestic abuse, that's where this really comes into play. But I'm just going to read this 9 to 5 article because it's a little more terse. Um, so uh, reading from the article, it says, Apple was careful to address AirTag's stalking concerns when it announced the new tracking tags, but was a little vague on the details of the privacy protections built into the system. It has now revealed a little more as concerns are expressed about the potential for misuse by abusive partners. There appears to be a particular loophole if someone wants to track a partner who uses an Android phone. Fast Company reports concerns expressed by a nonprofit created to tackle the abuse of domestic violence. And this is a quote from Fast Company. Technology often comes with unintended consequences, explain representatives from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, the NNEDV, a leading nonprofit with the goal of ending violence against women. NNEDV sits on advisory boards for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Uber and has consulted for both Google and Apple in the past, but not on AirTags. The organization's representatives say that while AirTags are cheap, easy-to-use product to find a lost item, they are also a worrisome surveillance tool that could be leveraged by an abuser to discreetly track a partner. An AirTag simply needs to be slipped into someone's bag or jacket pocket to track exactly where they go. And then, uh, and that's the quote from Fast Company. And then uh, it says, Apple initially drew attention to three privacy protections. Then it quotes, I think, something from Apple. It says, iOS devices can detect an AirTag that isn't with its owner and notify the user in a, if an unknown AirTag is seen to be traveling with them from place to place over time. And even if users don't have an iOS device, an AirTag separated from its owner for an extended period of time will play a sound when moved to draw attention to it. If a user detects an unknown AirTag, they can tap it with their iPhone or an NFC-capable device, and instructions will guide them to disable the unknown AirTag. And that's the end of the quote from Apple, and back to the article. However, the company didn't get into the specifics of when and where it would alert people. In a response to questions, Apple did give two specifics. And this is from Apple. First, arriving at your home address with an unknown tag will trigger an alert on your iPhone. The address used is the one you have in your Me contact. Second, an alert will also be triggered if there's an unknown tag with you when you arrive at one of your frequently visited locations, such as a work address. And then back to the article, these alerts only work if you have an iPhone, however. If you're an Android user, the only protection is the fallback one of sounding an alert from the AirTag after three days. Domestic abuse campaigners say that there are two problems with this. Three days is a long time to be tracked without your knowledge, and the three-day alarm is only triggered when the AirTag doesn't come within range of its paired iPhone. So, abusers who live with partners using Android can constantly pair and repair an AirTag so that it won't set off an alert, a problem so core to the design of AirTags I'm skeptical it can be fixed with a software tweak. And this is a quote from uh, Corbin Street, uh, who's a technology specialist at the NNEDV. He says, quote, Three days won't work if you're going home every day to the same person tracking you. That's a learning space that hopefully Apple will consider and work to build in protections with that threat model. Apple is thinking about the threat model where it's a stalker who is walking by someone on the street they don't know, that stranger danger model. But what about when it's a person you come home to every day? Unquote. 
Street suggests Apple should have partnered with Google to create a cross-platform safeguard the way it did with COVID-19 contact tracing. In that way, Android users would get the same level of AirTag stocking protection as iPhone owners. So I would agree, and I think, I think Apple's going to have to work with Google on this to come up with something similar. For other reasons, antitrust reasons, Apple is opening up this their find my tracking system to third parties. And I think that's another solution here is that they need to make, they need to allow other types of devices to work with these systems as well so that they can get the same level of protection that somebody with an iPhone has. So this is brand new. It just came out. I've actually, I just ordered some for me and my family. I'm curious to see how they work. I should get them in another week or two, but I think it'll be very interesting to see how Apple responds to this particular thing. And I, I assume they will. I don't know if they can fix it totally, but it should be noted that obviously any device that's used for tracking can be used for, for good or for evil. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that Apple did put in some really interesting safeguards to try to prevent this from happening, but I think they're going to need to go further. And I think that some of these things can and will be fixed with some future software updates. But in the meantime, if this is something that you're worried about, if you're in a potentially abusive scenario, uh, or if you just worry about trackers in general, uh, definitely read this other article I'm going to tell you about uh, at mashable.com. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, Also, you know, maybe search uh, the Apple site for privacy on AirTags. Make sure you understand how they work and how you can find tags that may be on your person that you didn't put there. If you start hearing something on your in your backpack that's chirping, uh, that's the signal that you may have one in there. If you do find one, uh, you can just remove the battery. Uh, you just put your fingers, you kind of press down on it with two fingers on the side and twist it, and it pops open, and then you take the battery out. Or, of course, you can just throw it in the, <laughs> flush it down the toilet, or maybe not flush it down the toilet. Maybe that's not a smart thing to do, but, you know, get rid of it. But the simplest thing to do is just remove the battery. All right. Thanks for holding in there. Now, real quick, let's get to the tip of the week. And um, I'm going to cover this very quickly. I did a whole blog article on this and a newsletter article on this. So uh, I would recommend that you check that out on my website or sign up for the newsletter to get things like this in the future automatically. And it just went out last night. So if it's the top article on my website, firewalls don't stop dragons. But Apple just released a really cool, long-awaited privacy feature for its iPhones, iPads, and even Apple TVs. There are actually technically different operating systems. There's iOS for phone, there's iPadOS for iPad, and there's tvOS for Apple TV. Uh, but they're all on the same version. And version 14.5 is the one that contains this new feature called App Tracking Transparency, or ATT. And if you've already upgraded, you may have already started seeing some pop-ups. Uh, and it will look something like, uh, it, it'll, it'll, it's a dialogue from Apple that says, allow, and then something in quotes, and it's the name of the app, like let's say Facebook or Facebook Messenger, allow Facebook to track your activity across other companies' apps and websites. And then there's something just below that says something like your data will be used to deliver personalized ads or something. That 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 little statement underneath is probably something that the app maker can choose. And then there's two options. You can say ask app not to track or allow. And neither one of them is pre-selected. Apple's not trying to drive you one way or the other. But it's giving you the choice. It's giving you informed consent, a radical idea that Facebook apparently believes is going to destroy the Internet as we know it. Because for years, Apple and Google and all these companies have said, you've always had the choice. We've always given you the choice. Just read those terms and conditions. Go through all your settings. Somewhere buried in there is a setting that would let you maybe stop doing this. But they know better. They know that people don't find those settings. They know the settings change all the time. And they know that the euphemistic terms that they use on those settings 
will mislead you into thinking that it's not doing what it's actually doing. So this is exactly what Apple is calling it. It is app tracking transparency. It is giving you a true transparent choice. It is letting you know this app wants to track you, not just for what you're doing in this app, but across what you might be doing with other related apps or, you know, with which they have relationships, advertising relationships usually, uh, or websites. It's, and it all has to do with opting in to a tracking identifier that Apple maintains that these companies have been using for years to build up data dossiers on you. And Apple's finally said, you know what? We need to make sure that everyone is given a choice on these things. And so they're popping up this dialogue and giving you the choice. And you could say I'll allow or not. And Facebook knows that given the choice, a lot of people are just going to say no. And they didn't want that. They complained vociferously about this. They took out full page ads saying how this is going to hurt small businesses. When in reality, it's just going to hurt Facebook. And all of this is premised on the idea that we need tracking in order to have good advertisements, let alone all the other stuff they're actually using it for beyond just serving up advertisements, which we don't. We, we, we really don't. In fact, we're going to be talking about this when we talk about Google's new third-party cookie replacement technology uh, in an interview I did with somebody from EFF. That's coming up in a few weeks. But anyway, so Apple is giving you the choice. And so a couple things I want to mention about this. First, obviously, I highly recommend you say don't allow. Now, you may have noticed that it said ask the app not to track you, not tell the app not to track you, which sounds a little vague and it sounds a little bit like it might not work. <laughs> like it's more of a suggestion than a requirement. And I, from what I've read, basically what Apple's saying is while they can programmatically, because they own the operating system and the device, control the use of this identifier, they would just basically not issue you an, a, a, an identifier for ad tracking. There are other ways that these companies could try to track you and they can't stop all of them. Uh, so I think what they're basically saying is they don't want to promise something they can't 100% deliver. So while they can enforce the use of this IDFA, this ID for ad thing that they do control, other companies have already been trying to find other ways to track you now that this is going away. They're all scurrying to figure out some other way to maintain this business model they have of tracking you and all your data. Apple has come out and said that if the user says no to this, then all other methods should be considered off the table as well. But of course, they can't enforce all of these things. And some of these companies may find some tricky way to do it. They may find some way to fingerprint you, uh, you know, fingerprint your device. They might try using your email address or your IP address or other things to track you that maybe Apple can't control. But Apple has said that they expect this to be honored. Uh, and if anybody proves to them that any app is, or any company is violating this in some other way that they will remove that app from the, from their app store. So it's a, a great step in the right direction. I highly recommend that you use it. Make sure that you're updated all your devices, including your TV devices to uh, version 14.5. Uh, and here's how you enable that. So once you've updated to 14.5 on your iPad or your iPhone, go into settings and then go to privacy and then go to tracking. And then right there at the top of that page is a button, a little toggle to either enable or disable, allow apps to request to track. So this is the upper level. This is, this is what even allows them to ask you the question. If you turn this off, 
they will just assume that for all apps, you do not want to be tracked. So I obviously recommend that that is exactly what you do. In fact, when I went to my phone after I upgraded, it was already enabled. So I don't know where it got that, but um, maybe because I had asked it not to track me and they had a, a different feature earlier on about, you know, less relevant ads or something like that. Maybe it just translated that forward to assuming I wanted this off as well, which is great. Uh, but anyway, go in and check that and make sure that is turned off. Now, if for some reason you buy into this notion that you need some apps to track you so they can give you better ads or whatever else, you can turn this on and then you will get this pop-up for every app going forward that wants access to your data, that wants to be able to track you across other apps and across websites. And at that point, you will start seeing pop-ups like the one I just mentioned, and you'll have to individually say yes or no. And they, those, whatever apps that you've responded to will show up on the same page in your settings, and you can individually go back and change your mind on any of them, or go back and change your mind on all of them by toggling this one button at the top. Now, I had to actually look up how to do it on Apple TV, um, but it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty much what you would think. Start off by uh, going into the settings on your Apple TV, go to General, then go to Privacy, then go to tracking and it's the same thing. Allow apps to ask to track. And mine was already off by default. I must've somehow signaled that I wanted this earlier. And so uh, anyway, but find that and you want to turn that off there as well. And there you go. That's the tip of the week. And there you have it. That is episode 218. All the news you need to know. Uh, thank you for hanging with me on all that. I, you can always tell them my voice is getting a little hoarse toward the end of these things. So uh, a couple quick things and I'll let you go. First of all, I did get another great book review. I uh, wanted to read it real quick because I said I would. Um, and it's from Rick Harris with five out of five stars. Thank you very much. And his review text says, this book is about how to maintain your privacy and security, whether you're going to internet sites that are essential for work, information or finance, or whether you're just meandering about the web. The book uses analogies to everyday life to explain the pathways of network communications that can make users susceptible to unwanted intrusion from ads and malware. Most importantly, the author recommends specific steps and software to safeguard your security, privacy, and time. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for that wonderful review. And thanks again to all of you who have post reviews for the book and the podcast. They really, really do help. And as they keep coming in, I will read them here. Next week, I've got an interview with Allison Macrina. She's from the Library Freedom Project. She actually founded the project. It's a really interesting story and very cool perspective on privacy. So definitely don't want to miss that. If you have not subscribed, do so now. It'll be another two-parter, I'm sure, because we had a lot to talk about. And then we'll do a new show after that. And hopefully that will be the week that I have the big announcement of the super secret project. Until then, check me out on Patreon. Uh, for as little as two bucks a month, you can be in the club. And uh, I've been having some really fun interactions with folks there on Discord. And patrons can get a preview of the podcast before they come out. They'll get the show notes sent to them. And with a preview of what's coming up in the show, I usually record these shows on Saturday. So often you will find out on Saturday night or Sunday morning what the show is going to be about on Monday and get all the links to all the articles I talk about and everything else that I reference. You can interact with me directly on Discord. You can ask me questions. We can just chat about whatever. You can, maybe if there's, you ran across an article on privacy or security that you think I should cover in the podcast, you can drop it for me there. And I've got all sorts of other great stuff coming up for patrons. So um, check that out for sure on patreon.com. All right, everybody. Thank you again for hanging in there. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Get those shots. Let's get to herd immunity and get beyond this pandemic. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Bye.